so welcome back. What we're doing today is a little bit different than our normal uh, session, if only because we don't have a session this week due to some personal reasons. Um, so instead, what we're going to do is I'm going to go through all the different homebrew rules that we have for our campaigns, at least for the ones that I run, and a lot of these have been carried over into Shannon's and Six's uh, campaigns that they do. Uh, not all of them necessarily apply, um, but these are the ones that we have and what we're doing. Um, first, all books are free game, including races, classes, subclasses, sub-races, backgrounds, feats, um, unless something is specified for a particular campaign, like for example, like you can't be a warforged in a prehistoric setting. Uh, I know Halloween, that would be ridiculous. Halloween's coming to say hi. Oh no, she bumped the microphone. Come here. But that'd be a little ridiculous to have a warforged in a uh, prehistoric setting, if that's what you're going for. I mean, if you want a, ro a robot riding a dinosaur, go for it. Um, in fact, that'd be pretty cool. But if the DM says no, the DM says no, and you have to stick with it. Um, in addition, Unearthed Arcana are free game, unless there's an officially released version for it. Uh, like the Monster Slayer. It's not a fighter subclass. Um, uh, weenie, don't, don't nose the microphone. Don't nose the microphone. Go, go play somewhere else. Yes, yes, go play somewhere else. Um, also, same with Revised Ranger. The, the class variants fix most of the uh, issues with that. We'll get to that, though, here in a bit. Uh, and also, no Mystics, because Mystics are terrible. I will not explain further. Uh, in addition, as the DM, I always reserve the right to reflavor something over incorporating a homebrew. Like, if you want to play a werewolf, just be a shifter. Or if you want to be a werewolf, just just be a beast uh, barbarian. They're functionally the exact same thing. Just flavor it that you, you wolf out. Um, to an extent, this also extends to critical role stuff as well because a lot of the stuff that's been released is not official material like the blood hunter as well as a couple of the subclasses in that um if it's a book for like grim hollow or taldore or anything else let me look at it first kind of like with homebrew um i just kind of consider that like secondary really nice homebrew and some of it's like okay it's fine you can do it if you want I don't necessarily would. I think there's better versions out there too, especially for blood magic. Uh, I think Grim Hollow rocks it with blood magic, though it is more complicated. Um, so yeah, uh, the next rule, this is not really a homebrew rule, this just is a rule, but no one really does it, is uh, shooting into melee. If you do not have direct line of sight on a target engaged in melee, the target has half cover. This raises its AC by two. Um... Basically, if you're an archer or a mage and you're in the back and your paladin is up fighting a goblin and you have to shoot around your buddy to hit the goblin, then it's harder to hit the goblin. I don't roll that if you that if you miss by so much, like you end up hitting the hitting your ally. I might have it like jokingly like, oh, it glances off their shoulder and they look it back at you angrily. Halloween, you're being very rude. Um, and have it glance off their shoulder. But 
like it's not going to have any real negative consequences. Uh, but that's it as far as that. Uh, one other thing I always do is first level feats for everyone. Um, I like feats. They're really good. Um, at least I think they are. Uh, and they also add a lot of like variety and intention. That, that's such a weird way of putting it. But like you're able to more quickly and easily get to your concept build for your character if you're allowed a first level feat. And one of the things I love about 5th edition is you can pretty quickly get to your ideal concept of your character, sometimes even at first level. You're not like the best version of your concept character, but you're pretty close and you're pretty good. Uh, and that's one of the things that I just like about it. And I feel like to everyone having a first level feat um, makes that go really well. Uh, the first level feat does kind of have to make sense. Um, like, for example, uh, a monk with, like, Great Weapon Master. Like, that, that doesn't necessarily... That, one, that'd be completely useless. But two, on top of that, it wouldn't just... It just wouldn't fit. Um, of like, oh yeah, I've been training in a monastery to punch things. I'm also really good at great swords for some reason. Um, I mean, any feat can be argued for a background, but at least has to fit the character and there has to be a reason for it. You can't just be like, I have magic initiate. Okay, cool. Why? I just do. Have you learned magic as a child? No. Yeah, none of that crap. Um, next, number four, being human makes you special. Uh, how I get around? Oh, and you give everybody a first level feat. What does that do for uh, human and custom lineage? Custom lineage is its own thing. We're not going to worry about that. But for human, everybody, every human just takes the prodigy feat. Like that's their that's their human variant. We just do human variant. You take the prodigy feat. Boom. Prodigy feat's really good, and I think it's honestly how the default human should be. Um. Because it's like, oh, you're pretty good at a couple stuff, you know, like humans typically were in previous D&D editions. I don't know why everyone thinks, like, I, I keep hearing, oh yeah, humans getting plus one to everything, and that's it, is really great. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's garbage. <laughs> it's terrible. It gives you so many odd numbers if you take the standard array. And on top of that, it doesn't really do anything beyond just, like, I'm slightly better at a couple things in no impactful way. Um, bleh. Uh, though I will say Mark Humans and Eberron are totally fine. Um, if you're one of the house, house marked or whatever. Um, I don't really know that much about the Eberron setting other than it has robots, and that's cool. Um, intellect. Number five. Intellect matters. For how big, for however big your intelligence modifier is, is how much you can, it, bleh. Your intelligence modifier, you can add however many skills, languages, tool proficiencies, uh, for however many, forever positive your intelligence modifier is. So like, for example, if you are, if you have an intelligence of 15, that's a plus two modifier. So the player gains proficiency in two things. So can take two languages, two skills, two tools, or any combination thereof. Additionally, if an intelligence, if a character has an intelligence of seven, they would have a negative two modifier. So the player would lose two skills, languages, or tool proficiencies. 
Uh, I will say, and this has actually been really fun, is instead of losing common as a language, because like you can't just go around mute, um, unless like that's your character concept, but that shouldn't be because you're an idiot. It should be because you're playing a character who just is mute. Um, instead, though, you can lose literacy for a character, which has been pretty fun, actually, the, the couple of times we've done it. Uh, where a character is like, I can't read that. I or or like they they might even know another language. They might even like know Elven or something or other languages just from racial bonuses. And I might be like, I don't know that. I, I don't know how to read this. I can speak it. I can understand it when I hear it, but I can't read. And that's led to some like interesting role play moments. Uh, this one hasn't really come up in any campaign, mostly just because the dash action takes care of a lot of it. Um, but sprinting. By sacrificing your entire turn, you can run in a straight line five times your movement speed. Afterwards, you make a DC 5 constitution save. On a failure, you take a level of exhaustion. If you continue sprinting on subsequent rounds, the DC increases by 5, and you continue taking levels of exhaustion on failures. The DC resets after you take a short rest. This movement must be in a straight line and always provokes attacks of opportunity, regardless of feats or other features. Um... This was just a therefore, like, oh no, the fight's happening, like, way over there, but my character was over here dicking around um, for roleplay reasons. I need to get over there fast. I'm a bucket. Just, uh, 150 feet in, 60, or in 6 seconds um, for the average character. For the monk, this becomes less of a problem. Some barbars, some rogues. Um... So yeah, that's that's the idea behind it. It hasn't really come up much, but I like having it as an option. Um, I think it's only come up like twice since I implemented the rule, but like it's weird. It came up a lot of times beforehand, and I was like, oh man, I really need to like come up with something for this, and it's barely happened since then. Um, but you know, it's still nice to have. I think it's useful. Uh, useful help number seven. In order to aid or help with a skill check, you must be proficient with that skill or have half proficiency from a class feature like Jack of All Trades or Bard. I'm a little bit more flexible with this, depending on the skill. Um, partially just because it's it's easier just to for a person to just be like, I aid. And like it's 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 usually not a problem because usually it's just I'd like to aid. Are you proficient? No. And sometimes I might ask, well, what are you doing to try to help? And I might allow it then if it's like, oh, I'm trying to distract this guard while they're doing a deception check. And so, like, I, I bump into them or something. I don't know. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like that's... I'm a little more flexible on that when I'm DMing. But as far as, like, rules written, homebrew rules written, um, you have to be proficient in the skill that you are helping with. Um, this is especially for intelligence checks, though, um, because I can't, I, it, it can't just be, uh, I'm the wizard, I know lots of stuff, let me see if I know this arcana, this secret arcana knowledge, and then the barbarian's like, I would like to aid, and it's like, how? How can you aid, how can you, barbarian with an intelligence of 8, aid the wizard with an intelligence of 20? <laughs> Because when they are thinking, 
And so, like, if but like, if the barbarian's proficient in Arcana, they're gonna be like, you know, maybe I heard I heard about something like this, and the bar and the wizard can be like, oh, right, that's jogged my memory. I know things now, as opposed to just, I don't know. I'm not. It's I'm rambling at this point, but you get the idea. Uh, number eight, encumbrance. We never follow this. I wish we did, but not everybody at my table uses D and D Beyond, where it would be really, really easy to track. <sighs> encumbrance. If we are, this is, but basically this is to say, if we are bothering with weight. Uh, you ignore the strength limit of an armor. The free movement limit of your encumbrance is five times your strength score. Exceeding the score reduces your movement by 10 feet, and you no longer receive bonuses to your base speed from class features. Doors can ignore this level, can ignore this, but none of the later ones. Uh, if you reach 10 times your strength score in weight that you carry, your speed is reduced by 20. Uh, you no longer receive bonuses to your base speed from class features, and you have disadvantage on decks, strength decks, and constitution checks, saves, and all attack rolls. Uh, reaching 15 times your strength score reduces your speed to zero. You no longer receive bonuses to your base attack to your base speed from class features. You have disadvantage on all aforementioned checks and saves and all attack rolls, and you automatically actually fail deck saves. Um, the idea behind this, and it's something that I think would be really cool, and if weight was more easily trackable, I think it'd be really dope, where, like, you, you, like, if you had, like, a spell that could, like, magnify the weight of a particular object, or if a character was running around in full plate, and if you're one of the gravity mages, one of the new, the, the relatively new uh, gravity wizards, and you're able to just, boom, your armor just tripled in weight and it's like oh gods why and now they can't move and they're having all these problems and like you have to keep concentrating on it or something but i feel like that's a really cool concept of just like i can control gravity i can control how much weight something has pulling on you uh and then on top of that like just i'm a rogue with you know 50 strength not 50 with 15 strength i can put on this full plate even if i'm not proficient in it Oh, and it's Mithril, so I can walk around like it's no problem uh, without stealth penalties. And I just it, it, it I feel like there's there's finagling that can be done to mess with the system as it is. Not that most people do, uh, but I kind of like this better because I feel like it actually opens up possibilities of like how it could work and make sense. Um, and that way you can also just have it be that, that way you can even then have it be like, oh, I'm a wizard, but I took, but I started as a fighter. I'm wearing full plate. I don't meet the strength requirements because that's not my goal, but I have cast spells or stuff on it so that, you know, I don't have to worry about carrying my gear around. So this is the only thing I have and my weight and I'm walking around with an 18 AC. Um, I like it. It's a thing. So yeah. Uh, Kind of as a subcategory for that, though, uh, a backpack reduces the weight of up to 30 pounds of gear to zero pounds, provided you can reasonably fit the gear into a backpack. Uh, backpacks themselves weigh nothing, but you are limited only to one per character. Um, that way, it's, 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 and that I included just as a, like, here's an easier way to just, like, track weight um, of, you have a backpack, it can hold 30 pounds of gear. As long as you have your backpack on you, your carrying capacity is basically increased by 30 um, 30 pounds, but 
we don't care care about weight for the most part just because it's hard to track on paper. Like it's it's a anno- it's not even annoying. It's it's a thing to track in D and D Beyond, and it can do it reasonably well. It's just on paper. No, it's not happening on paper. Let's see. So our next rule is the improved critical rule. Uh, we borrowed this. I'm pretty sure from XP to level three's table. Might might have been the dungeon dudes. I'm not sure. Those are the two. Uh, shameless plug for those two channels. They're pretty great if you're listening to me and don't already listen to them. In which case, like, I'm kind of questioning how you found me first? Weird. Uh, but improved criticals. Criticals now deal maximum damage of a normal attack, plus all the dice rolled again. For example, a 5th level rogue with 18 dexterity, using a rapier, and getting sneak attack. Deals 1d8, 3d6, plus 4 damage normally. On a critical... The static damage would be maxed out at 30. So just straight up, you do max damage. Boom. In that case, 30. Plus a D8 and three D6s. Uh, The reason why we have this is because it's not fun when you get a critical and you just kind of roll garbage. You you roll snake eyes. You roll two ones. And it's like, whoa, that was completely pointless and useless. Um, Like some stuff can kind of circumvent that, like great weapon fighting, uh, the fighting style. Uh, or Savage Attacker, or other stuff like that. But it's just really annoying. Um, and so, yeah, it this has really improved, because criticals really hurt. And, like, they are guaranteed this is going to be painful no matter what. Uh, and it does work also against the players. So if an, if an enemy criticals on them, they deal max damage plus dice rolled. Which... You know, can hurt a lot. Uh, and the way we get around stuff like the Barbarians improved critical stuff where they get to roll extra dice, they just roll the extra dice. Like they do max damage, and instead of rolling one dice, they roll two dice for the critical, and the, or three or however many. I think it's called Brutal Critical. Same, I think, also for Orcs. Um, I want to say Savage Attacker to something similar to that, but I can't think of it off the top of my head. But just, it's, you do max damage, then you roll your extra dice. Uh, That was rule number nine. Rule number ten, death saving throws are rolled by the DM in secret. Because you don't know if you're dying. You definitely don't know if your buddy over there is dying. So you should go heal them, or ignore them and deal with the consequences. Either way, good role playing. So, rule number eleven. Natural 1s, natural 20s on skill checks do not mean auto-fail or auto-success. This is only for skill checks. 1s and 20s still hold for attacks and saves. Um, And for flavor, just 1s that succeed do so barely, but 20s that fail do so like in the best way possible. Um, This isn't a homebrew. I'm just kind of more emphasizing it as a thing because I, I know a lot of people are just like, Oh, hey. I'm a wizard with an 8 strength. I go open this 2,000 pound door. Rolls. I got a natural 20. Somehow God likes me enough. And just open the door. No, we're not doing that. That's dumb. (laughs) Our next rule. This is rule number 12. This hasn't come up as much. It's the life has a cost rule. Where bringing a character back from the dead. Using revivify or resurrection. Anything short of true resurrection has a component to it either there needs to be 
uh, ritual performed where, you know, things are offered or words are said. Checks are made, basically, in order to try to bring the character back from the dead. Uh, this hasn't come up that much, but it does come up. Where well, I'm not going to go that much into it because it's kind of really complicated and convoluted. We borrowed the concept from uh, Critical Role. It hasn't really come up, though. Uh, mostly because... Whenever a character has been brought back, there have been other mitigating circumstances of like, yeah, this still sucks. Uh, and I'm thinking of actually scrapping this rule and replacing it with another one. Havoc, don't go bark. Good boy. Uh, replacing it with another one. Oh, no, come here. Come here. Come here. Come here. I don't want you woofing. Come here. But replacing it with another one where... Good boy. Good boy. Replacing it with another one where the uh, the character, the, the, the resurrected character, has basically death lag. <laughs> uh, where for an extended period of time, depending on the strength of the spell used to, brought, to, bring, to bring them back, they're, they're taking penalties to their d20 rolls. Because uh, you were dead, it should kind of hurt to come back. Uh, this kind of feeds into rule number 13, uh, death changes you. Once you resurrect, either A, your personality has to shift somehow, B, there has to be some role-playing consequence, or C, your alignment shifts in one direction of your choice. Um, the best example I can think of where we did something like this, because I feel like death should have a consequence, uh, the best example I can think of where we did this was in... Our Curse of Strahd campaign, when Shannon's character, Adriana, who was Strahd's daughter, uh, she died uh, fighting a bunch of just random throwaways because she ran ahead. Um, she was fighting a bunch of random throwaways, died because she was outnumbered, and then as she was dying, Strahd was like, really? This is how you die? Okay, fine. I'm going to bring you back. Stop throwing a tantrum. And instead, you're going to do something you don't want to do. And he, he actually made her destroy the, uh, the Sir Pool in, uh, in one of the towns. The, the one way that could bring... Have it come here. The one way that could actually let uh, Irina slash Tatiana escape, he made her destroy it. And who boy, that was fun. Good roleplay consequences. Uh, let's see. Next, in number four, rule number 14. Intelligence casters get a spellbook, or at least something akin to it. Intelligence-based subclasses like Eldritch Knight and Arcane Trickster have a spellbook like the Wizard's spellbook. They prepare spells from the book like a wizard, but use their known spells as, spell, as spells prepared. Uh, they can add spells to their spellbooks like a wizard, but, they but any they naturally learn are limited to the, subclass to the subclasses that are uh, provided. Uh, for example, an Eldritch Knight cannot naturally learn an enchantment spell unless it is one of the levels where they can. They can, however, add spells from any other school from another spellbook or scroll, provided they follow the gold and time costs and the spell is a level that they can cast. Um, I like Eldritch Knights. I, I love me a Gish build. Um, I really like the Arcane Trickster just as a concept. Um, but I feel like if you're going to, intelligent casters are so rare, I feel like they should be a little bit bumped up. Like granted, we've got Artificer now, but I just feel like the 
the other two, the arcane trickster and the eldritch knight, need like a little bit of a nudge, uh, just to kind of like, yeah, you're a wizard, kind of. Uh, let's see, rule. We're skipping rule number fifteen because that's just kind of it's my whole separate homebrew classes and subclasses. Um, my gunslinger that uh, Shannon is playing in uh, Cowboys and Samurai, Samurai and Cowboys, uh, Elva. Uh, she's doing that gunslinger. I really like that subclass. I will probably do another one of these at some point kind of going over it. Just because I'm really proud of the, the, the subclass. And hey, wizards, if you want to hit me up and actually like incorporate gunslinger for realsies, not Matt Mercer's version, which I don't think it's really that great. <laughs> I think it's mechanically complicated. And I know it's not really that mechanically complicated, but, like, I just feel like, oh, we'll just take Fighter and make it into, and give it, you know, a new subclass that's with guns. And I'm just like, does it really fit the Gunslinger? The Gunslinger is supposed to be a little bit different. It's supposed to be a little bit more unique than just Fighter with Gun. Uh, but, like, a few other subclasses that I've made, mostly subclasses that I've made, um, a rework of the Assassin Rogue that I am very proud of as well. Uh, yeah, I'll probably do a recording of those. But that feeds us, though, into Rule 16, Homebrew Rule 16, which I'm a big fan of as well. Uh, and I know Six is because he really likes to do two-weapon fighters. Uh, this is our two-weapon fighting buff. And this has got, like, a few outer ripples, but they're all stuff that makes sense. Where it's like, oh, this is supposed to be like two-weapon fighting, so we tweak it so that it just fits under the new rules. Um, first of all, for two-weapon fighting, you no longer use a bonus action for two-weapon fighting. Fighting with two weapons allows you to attack with the weapon in your offhand once as part of the attack action. This extra attack must be made with the offhand weapon. You do not add your damage modifier to the damage rolls unless you have the appropriate fighting style, i.e. two-weapon fighting. Uh, so, there are four consequences for this buff, and they are specific to subclasses, or to different classes or subclasses, and one feat. And honestly, I like them this way, because they just work really well. Um, monks. Monks are considered to be two-weapon fighting if they are unarmed with no weapons or shield in either hand. They add their damage modifier to their offhand attack when unarmed, when fighting unarmed. The monk still retains all the benefits of martial arts and flurry of blows features. Kensei monks are not considered armed for the sake of this feature if they are wielding their Kensei weapon, i.e., they can make an extra unarmed attack if they are wielding their if if they are wielding their Kensei weapon. So, like for example, Autumn, my monk in shenanigans with her two weapon with with how this works now. She's able to go up, no weapons in hand, and able to get in a punch, a, 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 a regular punch for her attack, extra attack punch, and then, an, and then her two-weapon fighting punch, all part of her action. And then she can bonus action, burn a key to do flurry of blows. Uh, or bonus action, martial arts, throw in an extra punch. The reason why we have this is, one... Monks should be hitting just a lot. Like, that just needs to be the thing that monks do. Monks throw punches. They're fast. Um, and so I feel like they should be getting in the pop, 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 pop extra punches. 
so yeah, monks are considered to be. So that's one of the reasons why we did this. Also, just it it's smooth. Like that one change of no longer requiring a bonus action smooths out so much of the action economy for two weapon fighters. Um, it because it used to be without this, you cannot play Dritzt. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Dritz do Warden, probably the most popular hero uh, character in all of in all of Dungeons and Dragons, Dark Elf Ranger with a Panther. He's a Beastmaster Ranger. That's his shtick. Like I think he's canonically also taken like levels of monk and barbarian, but like he's a ranger. He's like he he is to Lord, to to D and D what Aragorn is to Lord of the Rings. He's the archetypal ranger. You can't play Dritzt effectively because he is he wields two scimitars or two long swords depending on how you interpret it, and he attacks with his panther, Guinevar. If he has to use his bonus action to tell his panther what to do, he cannot fight with two weapons. That second weapon is completely useless. Ah! And I get kind of like why initially they had the idea of like, oh, you have to use the bonus action in order to attack. But like, it it doesn't work. It just doesn't. It it weakens the builds. It's It doesn't... Like, like, you can get like feats and other stuff to like kind of buff it up. It doesn't really help even then. Um, so, yeah. That's one of the reasons why we had this. Same for the monks. Build out more. Uh, lots of punches. Punchy, punchy, punchy. Uh, on top of that, because there's not a lot of like magic stuff that buffs the monks uh attacks like you you have to kind of go out of your way to get stuff to like improve monk attacks we we feel like this is still reasonable um even if you get like five attacks like because that that's realistically what you're looking at at fifth level you're getting five attacks um and it's been nice. Like, it hasn't, like, thrown balance out too much. And, like, you're still a monk. You still have to be, like, close and engaged. Um, and honestly, it also opens up, like, more options for the bonus action for monks and other characters that are dual-wielding. Where it's like, oh, cool. I don't have to commit to this build idea of attacking with my offhand. Because otherwise it's completely useless. Instead, I can just keep attacking. or And then, like, back out. Or use my bonus action for other stuff. Um... The other change we made with this is fighters. Fighters gain an additional offhand attack if they are level 11 or higher in the class with the second part of the extra attack. So instead of attacking... So once you hit level 11, you can attack three times with your main hand and two times with your offhand. And then that's it. You don't gain any more attacks with your offhand. And so like when you hit level 20 and you get that fourth attack, you're hitting four times with your main hand, two times with your offhand. And then you can action surge and do it again. Um, and like, yes, that's pretty powerful. But like, you're a two-weapon fighter. You're supposed to be a blender. If, if, if orcs run towards you, or goblins, or zombies, or anything run towards you, and you're swinging around a bunch of scimitars, it's going to feel really nice to just, to just basically become a Beyblade and just spin around and kill everything. I love that idea. Also, this really helps out rangers. I don't think I can emphasize enough how much this helps rangers. Uh, let's see. Next, uh, soul knife rogues. We're getting more specific into like subclasses. 
uh, Cell Knife Rogues no longer need to use a bonus action for their offhand attack. Because uh, right now, as it's set up, is they have like their two psychic daggers. They can throw one, and it does a d6, or stab with one, and it does a d6. And they can stab with an offhand, and it does a d4. Um, but that takes a bonus action for that d4. Not anymore. Just, you get two daggers, throw, throw, or stab, stab. Uh, last is the Shield Master feat. Uh, Shield Master, the shove bonus action, is now part of the attack action, and can take place before or after the attacks. Or in the middle! Uh, only once per turn, i.e. no extra attack, or extra shove attack on action surge, but you could, you know, follow the normal shoving rules and replace one attack with a shove. That's kind of one of the things that bothered me with how the attack action works with um, with Shield Master is like, I think, I can't remember if it was Jeremy Crawford or someone, one of the D&D &D devs was like, oh no, this bonus action has to come after. And I'm like, why? Like, that's not how that's worked ever. That's not how that's worked with any other bonus action beforehand where it's like you have to do a particular thing. And, like, it doesn't even necessarily say after. It's like, if you take the attack action as a bonus action, you can do this. Cool. I bonus action... I, I'm taking the attack action. Bonus action, shove, swing, swing. Um, cause, and, like, it's... Because if I was a, if I was a first-level fighter and I was two-weapon fighting, I'd be able to just do the same thing with the rules as written... Because I can just replace, I can push with one of my attacks, they fall over, swing with advantage, bonus action, swing with advantage. But like, I can do that as a two-weapon fighter, but not as a person with a shield who would then be able to do it. It, it doesn't make sense to me why you can't just do the bonus action. So we just kind of negated that entirely, just like you can do it before, middle, or end. Doesn't matter. Uh, and it's not a bonus action anymore. Uh, getting towards the end, we only got like two more. Uh, rule number 17. Uh, long swords have the finesse trait when wielded in one hand. Uh, battle axes and war hammers gain the heavy trait for the sake of feats and other qualifiers when wielded in both hands, uh, but can still be wielded by small creatures with no penalty. Um... Uh, yeah, we, we just kind of included this so that, you know, you could have your gnome barbarian swinging around a battle axe uh, and still be able to do heavy weapon master because that's a brilliant idea and I love it. Uh, and after talking with Six, who is a bit more of a martially inclined person in real life, uh, Longsword's totally valid to be more dex-based. Uh, he is a big fan of that. I'm a big fan of it. And it also explains why longswords show up on the rogue and bard uh, weapon proficiencies, even though they are dex-based characters. Like, you could do a strength bard, you could do a strength rogue. I actually have a subclass homebrew that is a strength-based rogue, and I really like it. It's called the Thug. I know other people have done it, but it's a cool idea. Um, but this way it's like, you're a longsword-wielding rogue, yeah, it's, I don't know, there's something about the, you know, the scrawny kid in, le in leathers with a longsword on his back, and he's just like, haha, it's me versus the world, pulls out your longsword, and just starts going to town. I don't know, I like the idea. 
we we've debated. I think I think six allows it, where um, where you can finesse it when it's in two hands. And like he he explained it, I kind of understood it how using a longsword in two hands does give you uh, is actually more dex because you can be a little bit more fluid with your movements. And it doesn't require as much pressure or as much strength because you have leverage more on your side. Um, but I think from a balancing perspective, being able to do a D10 of damage with a finesse weapon, I don't know, doesn't quite sit as well with me. Though, to be fair, you can do that with a heavy crossbow. So maybe there is something to that. Um, another time, perhaps. Uh, last rule, last thing, social checks. This is actually in the rules. No one follows it. I kind of actually love it because it kind of explains like how you can actually do persuasion, deception, and intimidation checks. Um, and for, for this, the term help is a very vague uh, thing, but basically su success with a person because the way that social checks work is, you know, you're supposed to like talk to the NPC. Um... Basically, there are four uh, DCs for a social check. 0, 10, 20, and 30. Um, and there are three classifications for an NPC. Friendly, indifferent, or hostile. Uh, this can vary on, like, previous social checks, the general relationship a character has with the NPC, so on and so forth. Um, but we're just going to, like, go through, and all of these apply for... Deception, intimidation, or persuasion. Though, like, why? But though it may hinder one way or the other uh, where they start to slide on the friendly, indifferent, or hostile scale. Like, if you intimidate a friendly character, they may actually shift to hostile. Um, or if you de deceive a friendly character and they find out about it, they may shift to indifferent or hostile. Um, this may be permanent, this may be temporary, it all depends. It's all very flexible, but this gives a little bit more structure to the uh, to the idea. So starting off, a friendly character at a DC of zero will help the party with no real with no real risk to their person. Um, a DC ten, a friendly character, will help the party with an acceptable risk of like, oh, I might get like in mild trouble with the law. I might have to pay a fee because you need me to distract a guard. Um, 20 will help the party at great risk. Like, oh, you need me to go and like help you help you carry stuff while you go and fight this dragon. Cool. I'm not gonna fight, but I'll pull your body, but I'll pull your unconscious corp or body out when you know you go down and try to give you a potion. Um, DC 30 will help the party with any risk, even certain death. Um, this is a, you've been a good friend to me. I will definitely help you go rescue the princess. I know I will probably die fighting the knights. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, next for an indifferent, uh, DC zero. Just straight up will not harm, will not help or harm the party. You tell them, leave us alone, and they will. Um, DC ten. Uh, we'll help the party with... And it kind of like starts shifting now. Now DC-10 will help the party with no acceptable... Uh, with no real risk involved. Uh, DC-20, help the party with an acceptable risk. 
and different person, DC 30, will help the party with great risk. You cannot convince just a random schmuck on the street, no matter how good your charisma is, to die for you. It's just not going to happen. Um, then for hostile, DC 0 uh, will actively hinder the party with acceptable risk. Uh, basically, if you go up to a person that you that who hates your guts or who you hate, and the feelings mutual, and you say, "Hey, don't mess with us," he's be like, "Oh, you shouldn't have told me that, because now I hate you, because I already hated you, and now I know that this is going to be a problem." Um, DC ten will not, but a DC ten check will convince them to not hinder or help. A DC twenty to help the party with no with no real risk. DC thirty. Help the party with an acceptable risk. Um, and once again, this can shift. Like, you can turn a player, or not a player, you can turn a character friend, hostile to friendly. It might take a while, or it might take, like, some really good role play or some really good bribery to get them onto your side. But once, you know, they are on once you have gotten them into a particular situation you make the request or you make the check after the dm determines are they still hostile are they indifferent are they friendly and then you roll uh so yeah that is my homebrew rules i hope you can use them in your game uh there's a decent chance that i'm going to make some tiktoks of these and post them and if i get enough attention or traction i will share them and like a PDF or in a Google Drive doc to share with folk. Have a good time. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Gremlins with Dice podcast, an exercise in insanity disguised as a D&D podcast. We hope you had as much fun listening as we did making it. We will start posting new content on Mondays. If you want more Gremlins content, you can find us on YouTube at Gremlins with Dice, where we stream different video games with no real discernible schedule. And on TikTok at Unnatural20. Hope to see you soon. Keep adventuring.